Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Usually I like to zig when other people zag, especially when I think they're wrong. So I'm a believer, especially in Dallas and Cleveland, that you're going to see folks flock back to downtown settings. Young folks aren't going to want to live in the burbs and drive 30, 45 minutes to all the entertainment district and the bars and the Cavs games or Mavs games, whatever you're looking for, right? To what we've seen in downtown Cleveland and Dallas, both of those markets that we're not seeing an exodus. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25000 but I've seen investment minimums as high as one hundred dollars or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Brian Burke from Praxis Capital, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm pleased today to have Kenny Wolf, president of Wolf Investments with us. He's been investing in multifamily property since 2010. He's invested over $250 million of commercial real estate with 4,500 units in Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and Ohio. He also owns commercial retail properties in three states and some ground-up development as well. Kenny has definitely been a friend of the left field investors community and has attended several of our meetings. So Kenny, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I wanted to start out with your journey, kind of how you got into real estate, maybe a little bit about what you did before and then where you've been since. Yeah, sure. So I started in oil and gas like every good Texan does. And so I did that uh, right out of Baylor University and then uh, 
kind of worked my way up in a small oil and gas company. I ended up being a CFO at the age of 28 for uh, kind of a sister or spinoff company of that oil and gas company. I got moved to Shreveport, Louisiana for another for three years. And then kind of in that five-year contract we had with that with our customer there, we they started having money issues and slow paying us. And so my wife and I, and I decided, you know, we got to figure something else out to do just because oil and gas is so up and down. It's feast or famine. And so everything has a cycle, but nothing like oil and gas. And so really kind of from there in Shreveport, invested passively twice in two syndication deals here in Dallas-Fort Worth, multifamily properties. One was a D-class, as much as you can call it a D. I mean, we bought it for 12000 a door, had to put like 10K a door into it. So awesome basis at the end of the day. But it was a deal where it was the worst property on the block and the pizza delivery guy guy wouldn't go into the into the complex to deliver pizza because he'd get mugged like it was that bad. So did that passive deal. And then quickly, about six months later, did a, a yield play. So a stable Fannie Mae loan kind of deal in Irving, Texas. Both those, I, I kind of chose those on purpose. One was the your big fixer upper. The other one was a yield play. I wanted to be a syndicator from early on but I wanted to learn the ropes on the passive route first. So that's what I did. Pick two polar opposites. And actually what's funny is they both ended up doubling our money in four years on both assets, but it's because just some learning points, I'll call them learning points on the uh, fixer upper that, that I got to kind of be in the, in the passenger seat and see kind of what to do and what not to do. How did you find the sponsor when you, when you first bought your two uh, passive properties? Really just networking. Um, I was part of, of a group down here called Lifestyles Unlimited. They're based in Houston, but have a Dallas office. So I was a part of that group. And then I was a part of, so that's kind of how I got the, the first two passive passive investments was through that kind of group. You know, those groups are great for networking. They're also, if you want to be a syndicator, they're a great place to network and find potential passives as well. So you use that as kind of a training ground. Is that why you chose to invest your very first investment to be in, the, in a D class, like a really bad neighborhood type investment? Was that more for learning? Yeah, absolutely. That, yeah, they were, both were really because I didn't. I was coming from oil and gas accounting, so I knew the numbers. Like I could read an income statement, and that's that's you have to have that knowledge to be a really good multifamily investor because that's how they're valued. But I didn't know the operations at all. Didn't know you know who, what management companies, what insurance, like all, all the team. I didn't know that at all. I didn't have any experience with any. Even I didn't have any. I've never bought a single family rental in my life, so I don't even know anything about that really. So it was a way for me to kind of learn and also make some good money on the on the way too. And so you had a relationship then with the syndicator. So he allowed you to come alongside and learn as you went, presumably. Yeah. So, you know, as I was, I, I, my hand was shaking when I was writing that $100,000 check for that first passive investment. And uh, as a, any 28 year old should handshake and writing a $100,000 investment. But I, but before I handed it to him, I said, look, this is my investment. This is also my, my education. I, I, I want to ask a lot of questions. I want to learn. I'm not going to be annoying, but I'll, you know, I'll respect your time, but I, I'm, I'm going to show up. I'll, I'd love to come tag along whenever you're on site, you know, kind of ask that up front. And he said, yes, uh, he took my money and I, and I did all that. I, I learned a lot being kind of more of a hands-on passive investor. So talk about how you got from being the hands-on passive investor and then you started syndicating your own deals. What was the journey after those, after those two deals? Just briefly on the second deal, I'll touch on that. That was a Fannie Mae loan, and that allowed me to get a Fannie Mae loan on my first syndication deal. So that's a that's a big deal. So if you're a syndicator or passive, want to go to to a syndicator, make sure you get on a Fannie or Freddie loan as a guarantor, and then that kind of launches you. So because that's what happened with us, right? So we that was a Fannie Mae loan, and then I found a 76 unit property uh, in Wiley, Texas. 
actually still own that one today. But that we bought that deal. I didn't have to bring any other guarantors for the experience piece because they counted that my passive investment on the Fannie Mae loan as experience. And so we've had you know access to non-recourse financing from our first syndication deal by doing that. So 76 units, and then that was going well, bought 133 units uh, in Denton, Texas. That one we've sold as of about a year ago. And then that then it really kind of just exploded. We bought um, an asset in Colorado Springs, Colorado, Oklahoma City, Columbus, and then Cleveland. And then, you know, we and then in Texas, we own now from Longview to El Paso. We're pretty spread out on on the uh, on the ground we cover. I think that's a great way to get into something is you invested. So you, you showed the sponsor you were serious. And then you said, hey, I'll just kind of go side by side to learn. And I've noticed that you do that for others now as well, correct? Is that kind of your way to pay it back? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, someone did that awesome service for me. So it's a way for me to kind of help give back, get other folks started. And, and that, well, what's funny is like a lot of the time they, they think they want to be a syndicator and then, and then they tag along and then they, a lot of them don't realize they don't want to be a syndicator, which is, you know, you, you have to know that that's very important to know that, but you don't know if you right. don't try, right? <laughs> yeah. And that, that's what happened to me in a, in a different fashion is I, I thought I wanted to be a syndicator. And I went to the real estate guys, they have their syndication seminar. And I went there and I realized while I was there that what I wanted to do was be passive, that I did because I learned about the syndication and how to be a syndicator. And I learned, okay, I, but without stepping into your shoes, I learned that, okay, that's too much for me. I'm much more geared towards passive. And so that's where I, I became a full-time passive investor just from watching that seminar. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, we see that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> So I want to talk about how you structure your deals because you you do it differently than most syndicators and certainly much more differently than experienced syndicators because you, at least in the deals I've seen, you typically don't have an acquisition fee or disposition fee and you have an 80-20 split in a lot of the deals that I've seen, which typically we see those fees and a lower split. So can you talk to me about why you set it up so that it's in favor of the LPs so much? Yeah, sure. So we do a little bit different, like most things around here at Wolf Investments. So we don't do an upfront acquisition fee. We don't do a prep. And the reasoning is because, and I was an economics major at, at Baylor. So, you know, making sure everybody's aligned and, and, uh, and investment is very, very key. But we do it that way because we're typically a longer term hold company on our assets. We're not a fix and flip. So if you're going to hold it five to seven years on the kind of your more typical model, you think of as a, from the syndicator point, of view, they're paid a lot at closing for just buying the deal. They're making almost nothing during the hold period because that pref eats up probably, you know, almost all or or a good portion of the cash flow. And then they're paid at the at the end when they sell it, right? So if you as a passive want to as a if you want to if you're a passive and you want to hold real estate longer term, which we, you know, obviously I think is the best way to do it, that's a horrible way to incentivize your sponsor. They're incentivized to buy and sell it as fast as possible. Because they're because they're not making anything during the cash flow. So our way is just an 80-20 split on cash flow and then 80-20 split on refinance proceeds. So we're incentivized to refinance that guy as fast as we can. And then on a sale, investors get hundred percent of their initial equity back through the refi and or the sale before the 80-20 split kicks in. And then the only other thing we charge above that is a point and a half asset management fee during operations of and that's the of the monthly monthly revenue that's collected. Yeah, and that that part is pretty typical. But I, you know, I think you're the only uh, one of the only sponsors I know of that doesn't charge fees on on either end, except for a couple of the guys who are just starting out, and you know that they're they're not doing the fees in, in order to attract investors. So I, I like the setup that you have. 
this setup, you have to we have to sing for your supper. So if the property does well, everybody does well. If it doesn't, then no one does well. Right. And also, you're moving towards more of a internal property management model. Is that correct? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we, you know, starting out, you have to use third party management. You really can't do it in house. Well, you can, but no one does it very well. So I've actually had to rescue three deals because of that. Uh, two of them, two of those rescues, I had a, where we weren't the initial deal sponsor. We were voted in to fix it. Uh, two of the three were because the guy tried to self manage. So that's probably a whole other 30 minute conversation. But so I don't recommend it, is, is what I'm saying. Third party is great to get you to a certain point. But three years ago, I got frustrated with the folks we were using. They weren't listening to me and my suggestions and how, how to improve it. And so hooking up with a, with a great property management company, tried them out on one of our assets. And then the other owner and I hit it off. And so I bought a 49% stake into uh, Allied Property Management. But they handle all of our Texas and Oklahoma assets. We're working on bringing an Ohio property management company in the fold as well. So we can have it fully in-house. Can you talk a little bit about how important the property manager is? I mean, I, I'm transitioning out of all of my single family rentals. And the reason is, is because I've been through several property managers and I can't find one that will, like you said, will do what I want. And so it's just been such a hassle that now I figure I can sell those and invest in passive syndications and have somebody else manage everything and do everything. That's kind of how I want to do it. So can you talk a little bit about how what what the the importance of property management is? It's so important. Multifamily is a very operational heavy business. Not quite as as the same as hotels, but pretty close, right? We, we've got a, a you've got to lease the property up. So on our assets, you've got we've got an onsite manager there every day. Some and it's if it's a big enough property. We have two people in the office or three, depending on the size. Um, and then we have onsite dedicated maintenance to that property as well, which is awesome because we can we can give better service, uh, catch problems faster, and then. All of our folks are in Texas. It's a big deal, but all of our folks are HVAC certified. So that way we can, it costs us a lot less to replace HVAC and do work like that. So, so just on the operations side, I mean, it's massive. They're, they're, they're the face to your, you know, four, five, 10, $20 million property. So you, you've got to have great property management um, as well. And then also on the, on the, also on the back end, they also do all the accounting um, on the operations as well, which is, which is huge. So they do all the, all the bookkeeping and all the journal entries. They write all the checks for all the vendors. I mean, so it's it's, it's pretty sweet as well. And then also too, like there's some there's some uh, intangibles that you get. So like an example I threw out there is kind of years ago, we were buying an asset here in Dallas-Fort Worth. We knew it needed asphalt repair, the tune of about $35,000. So we underwrote that. And then once we actually got the property under control, our management company had three other properties in the same area here in DFW that needed asphalt repair. And so they actually packaged all of our four properties up together. Um, and it only cost us like $20,000 for that, what should have, would have been a $35,000 asphalt repair. So you see, you see benefits like that as well. You also recently have purchased two properties in downtowns, right? Downtown Cleveland, and then you're working on one in downtown Dallas. And given the state of the pandemic and downtown areas, people moving out, why did you decide to go into uh, into downtown properties? Usually, I like to zig when other people zag, um, especially when I think they're wrong, right? So I'm a believer, especially in, in those two markets in Dallas and Cleveland, that you're going to see folks flock back to downtown settings because young folks aren't going to want to live in the burbs and drive 30, 45 minutes to all the entertainment district and the bars and the Cavs games or Mavs games, whatever you're looking for, right? They're not going to want to do that. You know, as a young person, I wouldn't want to do that. 
And then also, too, what we've seen in downtown Cleveland and Dallas, both of those markets that we're not seeing an exodus. I mean, the, the occupancy in downtown Dallas went from 92%, 93% to like 89, 90. And then actually, it's there was an article put out by CBRE, I think last week. My, I think I posted on my Facebook. Uh, but anyways, that actually show rental increases and occupancy increases both in the suburbs and downtown settings. Now, New York City and San Francisco, totally different story. Absolutely, they're moving out, but it's a different reason. <laughs> right. It's, it's not because of the pandemic. I, I really think rents, we haven't seen rents decrease. Um, you haven't seen occupancies really take a big hit. And so I, I fully expect them to come roaring back and actually be at much higher rental rates than what we have seen in the past. Okay. So, and the, the one in Cleveland is a development deal. And I know you're in a couple of other development type deals. Can you talk a little bit about the development aspect and how that, that's different than the typical, you know, buy and, and cash flow model that you talked about earlier? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So, we uh, about three years ago, we added a development arm to the company. And I did that just buying townhome lots myself, didn't take any investors because I didn't know what I was doing on the de- development side. Uh, figured that out. So, now we're doing actually a ground up here in Dallas Fort Worth. And then kind of the latest thing in that development arm is we bought the Rockefeller building in downtown Cleveland. It's a historic office building, and we'll convert that to multifamily, the vast majority multifamily. So the reason being is because before COVID happened, the average vacancy of office in downtown major U.S. cities was 30%, which is a big deal, right? 30%, so that's not great. And then COVID hit. So then all of a sudden, these office folks got pretty nervous. The, 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 The lenders for the office folks also got nervous. And so we're seeing some pretty good pricing on some downtown office buildings where we can buy them for 40 bucks a square foot and then put in maybe another 100, 120 a square foot into it to make a really nice A-class property. So we're all in, call it on the high end, 150 a foot, but we're getting $2 rent, rent, rent prices here in Dallas-Fort Worth. We're getting almost three in Cleveland, $3 a foot in downtown Cleveland. And so with that, with those kind of returns on the cash flow and where these properties are located, it's A plus locations, uh, you know, you're going to have an awesome, uh, you're eventually going to have an awesome cash flow, but you're not going to cash flow for the first two, maybe two and a half years while that project is being done and completed and leased up. So are you doing development other than these office buildings or do you have other office buildings you're, you're looking at or is it, is it kind of a mixture of what kind of development deals you're doing? Well, so right now we've got both. We got we got one of each. So we've got a ground up development now, eighty eight units in multi in DFW that we're building. We're about to break ground probably in the next three to four weeks. So we're pretty far down the road on that one. And then Rockefeller building, we're, we're really far down the road on that one too. Probably swinging hammers by May or June. And then we've got probably four or five other downtown office buildings and spread out over another one in downtown Cleveland, Cincinnati, two in Atlanta, and then we've looked at quite a few here in Dallas, uh, in downtown Dallas as well. As, as opportunities to either partner with the current owners and buy out maybe 10 of the 44s. We looked at that option, kind of condo those out. Um, as long as we have our own elevator, I'm happy with that situation. And then uh, and if not, then we'll buy the whole building. We're looking at that option as well. Have you thought about hotels at all, converting those to multifamily? Because I've heard yeah. some people are doing that nowadays. Yeah, we've looked at that too. Um, you know, I've talked to, it's funny, I was sitting on the plane. It's, it's amazing, you know, when you start talking to people on a plane, who you meet. So, I actually happened to be flying to El Paso to visit some of our uh, our B class properties out there, and uh, next to me was a president of a development company. So I was asking him questions about so what's easier to to convert a hotel or or uh, or office, and you know obviously he, he said it depends, but if it's a newer um, hotel, then hotel is going to be easier. 
than Office. But so it just kind of depends on that. Office really isn't that bad because you've got a full, basically, it's mostly just fake walls in there. So you take those down, you've got usually 15 to 20 foot ceilings on each each floor. So you've got a lot of space to make a good size um, ceiling there, even with adding in ductwork and plumb. You know, you have to bore out some of that each uh, floor plate to get the plumbing but there's you know we've got we've we've uh, we're teamed, teamed up with multiple gcs that have already done a lot of these office conversions as well since we you know are going to rely a lot on their past projects as well another question for travis smith the founder of TribeVest. travis i often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California, and we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy and it helps you take the most important step, the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. So switching gears then, you also have a commercial real estate fund and buying like family dollars and uh, auto parts stores. Can you talk a little bit about that? So that was something we had about three years ago, about the same time, because the reasoning was also to give a different risk and reward ratio for three different offerings. That way folks can pick and choose what they want. But the triple net stuff is came about why by I was asking a mortgage broker, he's was been in the business probably 35, 40 years now. I asked him, like, what's the next step beyond multifamily? And he said, Well, most folks either buy medical office or, or triple net, and not because they make more money, but because there are a lot less operational headaches. So it's a lot easier to to, to operate. So we put up our first fund together, bought seven dollar stores, family dollar, dollar general, dollar tree. And kind of fast forward to today, we've got 18 of those. Uh, we've got one advanced auto parts and we're about to buy in Walgreens here in about three weeks. But really the, the goal with that fund is to create a monthly steady stream of income. And so we just actually sent out ACHs and checks uh, this morning uh, for all those three funds. Um, and it's just mostly boring cash flow, monthly cash flow, which is which is pretty awesome sometimes yeah. for, for a lot of folks' portfolios. And then kind of what we've, and that that's really the main goal, but the second fund and this third fund, what we've done is put one or two buildings, two op properties in there where it's a blend and extend. And a good example is we just got a term sheet back this morning. We bought the Wilmington, Ohio, if you know where that is. Uh, we bought that uh, family dollar from a 
a doctor who inherited it recently from his dad. We bought it for almost a 10 cap. And then while we're, but it only had 18 months left on the lease. So while we were under LOI, uh, we, we had, we contacted Family Dollar, had an email from them saying, yes, we're going to extend. Um, we kind of worked out a, uh, an extension already to the deal. Uh, we're able to show that to our lender and they got us a decent amount of leverage is a 65% leverage deal. And then we bought it for about a 995. And then we just got a term sheet. So after that extension, we're, we're, we're about to refi it and they're going to give us a seven cap. So we turned a 10 cap to a seven cap, which is pretty awesome. So the investors, we did that probably nine months ago, a, a almost 100% return on their money for that one store. Now there's seven other stores in that fund and they're more of the cash flow play, but as a way to kind of boost that, that equity return for that fund. How do you buy these? Are there other people bidding? Is, is it like when you're buying a multifamily and there's last and final and, and a bunch of people uh, bidding against each other on these? So don't tell anybody, Jim, but, <laughs> but, but but we're buying these off the rack. We do have some ins now with some brokers and they get us some off-market deals. But I mean, for the most part, we're, we're finding these at seven and a half to almost 10 caps sometimes on these kind of stores. But I would suggest too, it's kind of like family doll or for, it's kind of like single family, right? So you don't want to buy just one because it's a single tenant store, but for the most, for the most part. So you better own three of them if you're going to buy it, you know, by yourself. Um, and that's why we did the fund is because as an investor, you're spread out over eight to 10 stores. So kind of de-risk it that way. And what's the hold time and the exit on these? So it's kind of set up like a rolling bond fund. And so, and I say that because um, each one, once it renews, we've got some renewals coming up next year. But once they start renewing, we'll sign those up and then we'll, we'll sell each individual store. So as those come up for sale, you know, we'll get back the equity uh, that the fund put up into it. And then, you know, the profits as well for that one store. And as they each one renews, we'll, we'll, we'll sell them off like that. So when you meet new passive investors and you talk about, it looks like you have kind of three, three different investment opportunities, the development, the multifamily, and the commercial real estate. Do you talk to them about which they would be more suited to based on their, their goals and objectives, or do you let them make that decision? Well, I always ask them too, because I, you know, because I don't want to waste their time. If they're looking for all appreciation, well, then I don't really talk about the commercial fund. But if they want to mix, then okay, well, then, then then that's a little bit longer conversation because that we've got to talk about not only their what they want on cash flow, but their appreciation um, and also the tax ramifications too. So multifamily, we get all, right, at least as of this year, um, grab as much as you can, guys, uh, this year of that cost seg bonus depreciation. But because who knows right. what's happening next year? But as of today, anyways, you know, we we get a lot of depreciation on that. We don't get as much on the commercial fund. So if you pair those up, you know your multifamily can cover your cash flow from the commercial fund and basically be tax free, right? Obviously, then we talk about the development, and you know some folks like that, some folks don't. So I just make sure they understand that you know they're not going to see it. We we need patient capital for those projects, right? But we expect to double the money in two to three years on that one on those. Can you talk about some mistakes you've seen passive investors make? I mean, most of our audience are passive investors. Some are new and just getting into this and some have been around a while, but can you talk about some of the mistakes you've seen people make? So, so I mentioned before, like we, we, we've actually been voted in twice hostile, it was a hostile takeover, but voted in to be the new syndicator on a deal after it was closed and it wasn't going very well. So I saw a lot, I learned a lot by doing that. You know, one of the big things to look out for is voting rights. A lot of folks don't think about that. So on the second deal, we, we were voted in a takeover, the sponsor actually had to vote himself out 
for it to go through because he had so much voting rights. You know, he had he took a 25 percent cut of the profits, which also was 25 percent voting rights. And then he and then he had like three or four points of ownership on the LP side. So he had, you know, 26, 28 percent voting rights and you needed 25 to vote him out. So so that's not good. You know, think about that kind of stuff. Folks don't think about that until until they until they need to. You know, it only becomes important until you need to. So that that's important to do. And then I always ask folks, you know, how much is the sponsor actually going to put in themselves? You know, so if they're taking an acquisition fee, you know, and they're putting in less than the acquisition fee, I kind of wonder, you know, are they actually putting money in the deal or not? I, there's a there's a debate there. Right. You know, so you know, I would ask for that too. And then track record is a huge deal. Make sure the person has a good track record. You know, and ask ask the tough questions. You know, what happened when a when a deal didn't go exactly right? You know, what what did they do? How they overcome it? What did they do to jump in and, and make sure it, it uh, the property was a success? So um, that's a uh, that's a big question. Um, I get that a lot from new investors, but but not ever. I'd probably say maybe 40 percent ask that question. Right. So actually, now to this podcast, it'll be a hundred percent, but uh, which is fine. <laughs> but anyway, so th- those are kind of the big big I guess nuggets that I would look at is you know what's uh, those three right there. Okay. And so our, our group typically, you know, when we're looking at deals, we, we look at the sponsor first and find somebody that we, we know, like, and trust. And then when they bring a deal to us, we kind of look at the market, make sure that's a market we want to get into. And then the third thing that we're really looking at is the deal. But the first two things have to be in place before we even get to the point of evaluating the deal. And we don't want to go and re-underwrite the deal. That's your job, right? As the sponsor. Right. Yeah. If you're a passive what are what are maybe the two or three most important deal specific metrics you would look at if you were evaluating a deal? I would ask for the what the cap rate is, right? What's the what's the exit cap rate? What's the or the reversion cap rate to use the jargon we use in the business? Uh, reversion cap rate is big. If you change that by a quarter point, uh, or if you're off a quarter point, I mean, put that in your spreadsheet. It'll it'll co- totally change the deal. Uh, so make sure they're 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 being conservative or you know on point. Uh, with the with reversion cap rate. Now that is a, a lot of the art of what we do in underwriting, um, not so much the science. Because typically, at least on our end, we're projecting five years out. It's a little hard to to, to know exactly what cap rates are going to do in five years. Um, a lot can change. But but again, you want to make sure that the cap rate isn't just something crazy. But I mean, I've seen deals where I thought they were crazy. Like in the Carolinas, I saw an egg reversion cap rate on a B deal at a five and a quarter, probably three years ago, and they wanted me to help raise money for it, and I told them no way. I'm going to assume a five and a quarter for a B, but look at them. They, they, they were smart. They were the right, they were right, but that's okay. You know, I'd, I'd rather miss out on a deal and be too conservative than add any kind of additional risk. So cap rates, a big place where I see uh, some underwriters get a little too loose. And then also then I would uh, then find the, the other two points would be uh, the next point would be expenses. Make sure they underwrite the property taxes, especially in Texas and Ohio. Those are big property tax thing. Insurance has gone up. Make sure they, they're underwriting the expenses correctly. And then revenue, rent as well. I mean, that, that's a, but that's pretty easy to verify, right? As a as a passive, you can go to apartments.com and look at right. the market, you know, and kind of verify that. But expenses is there's something where, as a passive, you may not know what it costs to run the property. You know, I I know because we do it all day, but I um, I've got real real lifetime uh, data. But passive is probably not going to know that. So make sure you ask the good questions about that. And then the um, and then the reversion cap rate's a big deal. So on the expenses, as you said, most passives aren't really going to know if it's in the right ballpark or not. So what what questions do we ask to really dig down and and just 
because I don't really need to know all of the details as a passive, but I want to know that you understand and you have it figured out. So what questions could I ask you to make sure that you know what you're talking about specific to that deal? Property, like in Ohio and Texas, property taxes are everything. That's the, and the expenses, you know, it goes probably property taxes, payroll insurance, usually in, 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 on any property in America, those are the top three expenses. So those ones I would really focus on admin fees, marketing. I mean, you know, unless it's just something crazy that pops out, you know, to you uh, ask about it. But to me, the big three is, you know, how are you going to staff it? Property taxes. What do those look like? And when, why are they so high or so low after you buy it? And there's, there could be reasoning. Like we, we bought an A-class deal, but it has a 50% tax property tax abatement on it. You know, so I had to explain to investors like, you know, why on our expenses expenses that the property taxes aren't going to be, you know, increased heavily on an A-class purchase here in Dallas, Fort Worth. But so every story, every, every property may have a story, but ask about that. And then insurance is a big deal, less so in Ohio, big deal here in Texas and Oklahoma, really the, all this, all the South uh, ask about insurance because it's always going up. Okay, great. So can you, um, I always like to end the podcast by asking what, what a great podcast that you listen to. Can you share us with the one or two podcasts that you like? Yeah, sure. So. I got to give a shout out to Old Capital Podcast. That's always a good one. They do a great job on that one. So I'd say definitely that one. And there's so many podcasts out there these days, but that's probably one of the better ones that has a, um, and it's probably been around oh, probably five, six years now. So they've got a lot of stuff to listen to on that. Yeah, I've, I've, I listen to them and I've also, uh, that's, that was recommended by an earlier guest too. So that, that's a great oh, okay. one. There you go. <laughs> so if uh, if our audience wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to contact you? Sure. Uh, best way is through the website. So wolf with an E-investments.com. We also have put a lot of content out on social media. So if you put Kenny Wolf in YouTube, we've got a whole series of educational videos we've been pumping out weekly since March uh, during COVID to kind of t- stay in touch with that way. But really, that's the best way to do it. We do have a big conference, in-person conference coming up this weekend in Houston. Um, it's sold out and we have an 80-person waiting list because we oh, did wow. limit it, limit the capacity because of COVID, right? So. So anyway, so so we, we're we're going to kick those back up. There's definitely demand for that. We're probably going to have another one in June, July. We're trying to pick this the right state that's open that will make sure that we can do it. So probably Florida, but we'll see. Yeah, everything goes in Florida. But anyway, so we'll see about that. So we're trying to do more of those, get more of these in-person meetings where we can kind of uh, safely roll that out and uh, get back to hopefully normal. Yeah, no kidding. Well, listen, we, we appreciate you being with us today. And you've, as I said in the open, you've been a great friend to left field investors. And uh, we, we look forward to seeing you when you're here. And uh, thanks for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you, Jim. Kenny is a very genuine guy and he's a lot of fun to talk to. There are syndicators who specialize in one specific thing. And then there are others who want to try anything. Kenny is a nice combination of the two where he has three niches that he operates in and does this to provide different opportunities for investors. If you have patient capital and not looking for an immediate return, he does his development deals that have very little cash flow, but he expects to double your investment in two or three years. If you want to focus on cash flow, he has his triple net funds with dollar stores and other single tenant leases, and he puts several of those in a fund to produce monthly cash flow. His third offering is the standard multifamily properties which can be a combination of current yield and appreciation depending on the particular property. I also like Kenny's take on wanting to be a long-term, properly incentivized partner. He shares the gains during the project, so he does not feel pressure to sell in order to get paid. 
He also doesn't charge front-end or back-end fees as a way to share the risk and reward equally with the limited partners. I appreciate that he doesn't always go along with the crowd. As he said, he likes to zig when other people are zagging, which is why he has made investments in downtown areas in Cleveland and Dallas and is looking for properties in other downtown locations as well. I think he's probably right that these areas will overcorrect because of the pandemic and present some good buying opportunities over the next few months. It's fun talking with Kenny. He's been a great friend to left field investors since we started over a year ago, and we look forward to working with him in the future. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. <laughs>